Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. As a traveler, it's a fact you're going to need to manage your spending in different currencies. You need a service that not only helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, but also does it without the hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This is where WISE comes in. WISE is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. I've been a customer for over a decade. It's been a lifesaver for me as a traveler, a nomad, and now a permanent resident abroad. If you're a traveler who's still using your regular bank, you need to check this out. Join 16 million customers and learn how the WISE account could work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to WISE for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travels brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. I came out, I'm shaking, and I didn't have any clothes. I didn't have shoes. I didn't have a wallet. I had nothing. That was today's guest, Neil Moore, sharing one of his brushes with death he had out on the water. Neil crossed America by canoe from west to east coast. This trip spanned 22 months, 22 states, and 22 rivers, over 7,000 miles. It's insane. He's been dubbed a, quote, modern-day Huck Finn by the media. And as we love to do here on the show, we're going to go beyond the adventure to uncover how Neil has really built his life around travel. You're going to discover how a family tragedy turned his world upside down at 13 years old and eventually led to this life of travel that he's living, the surprising way Neil finances his travels. This book went to Swan and sold for, I believe, $42,000. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> which, which for me was the, the biggest paycheck I've seen in my entire Wow. <laughs> Wait, you found this at the Goodwill? Correct, yes. Why he chooses to be based in Taipei and Cape Town instead of living in his home country of the USA He'll share some stories from his time paddling the Mississippi as a CNN citizen journalist, lessons from failing on his first cross-country canoe attempt, why he didn't give up, why nature-based travel is so powerful, and much, much more coming at you today as we continue Wild Ways to Travel Week here on the Zero to Travel podcast. Thanks for listening, my friend, and welcome to the show. Listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now, your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey, what's up? It's Jason here with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. And did you know the first canoe ever built, according to Wikipedia at least, is the Pessy Canoe. Quote, it is believed to be the world's oldest known boat and certainly the oldest known canoe. Carbon dating indicates that the boat was constructed during the early Mesolithic period between 840 BC and 7510 BC. That's insane. Uh, you can look at this canoe now in the Netherlands at the Drents Museum. Pretty cool. Yeah, we're talking about canoeing today, of course, as you heard at the top, much more than that. But, you know, I find the, the chain of events it took for Neil to go on this trip. I mean, you can kind of trace them all the way back to uh, 
840 BC, right? <laughs> That's insane. When you think about how uh, generationally our, our knowledge and, and our tools compound and, and we're all able to benefit from what previous generations created and, and have done. And hopefully we're creating some things that future generations can benefit from. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> we're going to get into this interview with Neil. It's a wide-ranging chat. And before we do, a couple things. First, stick around on the back end if you want. I will wrap up this interview by sharing a moment from this conversation that reminds me of a phrase that is always good for you to remember and to take to heart when you're feeling a little stuck. So we'll share that. And uh, one last reminder as well, zero to travel.com slash newsletter. If you want to sign up for the newsletter, you should. It's free. We can keep in touch over there, send it out every week, and you get all the updates, some helpful travel links, personal recommendations on various things. Go ahead and sign up. I think you'll dig it. Okay. Let's get into the conversation with Neil. By the way, his website, 22rivers.com in the show notes, and you can find all of his work there. Please enjoy, and thanks for listening. I'm excited to chat with you today. Where whereabouts are you? Uh, right downtown Taipei City, the capital of Taiwan. What are you doing there? How did you end up there? I, I got here. I had I had spent time uh, some time in Europe. I studied in Spain. I um, I had uh, uh, sp- spent summers as a, as a child in on the North Shore of Oahu in Hawaii with my cousins and uh, and cousins in England and Scotland. And then, um, and then quite a bit of time in Africa. Most of my, most of my uh, adult life from the time I was a teenager has been in Africa. But the, the, the crown jewel for me was, was the Far East. And I had a friend who came out here with his wife. And then they, they encouraged me to come as well. And uh, I came and my, my very first day in Taiwan was the first day of 2001. And my jaw was just on the ground and just sensory overload. It was just a whole different world. And I've been a hook, line, and sinker in love with it ever since. Yeah, you're still there. I mean, <laughs> it is off and on. So I, I, I spend. I like to say I spend the globe. I spend time here in Taipei as a launching out uh, board for other locations around Southeast Asia and Asia, and then in Cape Town, South Africa, as a launching board for the rest of Africa. So you do have a base there. You have a home there. I have an apartment that I, I, I rent while I'm here. So it's, it's, it's by the month and uh, I'm, I'm sort of, a, I'm very much living uh, hand to mouth um, my entire adult life and just uh, sort of happy-go-lucky and uh, making my way through the world. And um, so, yeah, I, I can't afford to have the place when I'm not here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that sounds like a good situation then, the month-to-month thing. Hand to mouth, yeah, happy go lucky. I guess was the term that you use. I mean, the, the hand to mouth and happy go lucky. Do those those go hand in hand? For me, they do. <laughs> yeah, for, for, for me, they do. They sort of. Uh, my thinking is the real value is experience, and for uh, for so many of us um, who have caught the travel bug, it's it, it's very much uh, what's what's next on the horizon, um, and uh, not not to go and visit. Uh, for for a day or two or for a week or two, but to actually uh, ship your books to um, and uh, and hang your hat and sort of uh, try to step into the rhyme and reason. And there are so many there are so many cultures around the world. And and I think if 
if it if it really was all planned out, if 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 there was, for example, a trust fund, or or if I had a high high power job, or or, or whatnot, that that, uh, that that lent itself to travel, I think a lot of the fun would be taken away. Um, part of the fun is how how are you going to make it work? And for me, when, when you when you roll into a a, a brand new a, a brand new country, a brand new city, a brand new continent. With little to no money in your pockets, now you're 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 sort of hyper vigilant. You're 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 on the streets and you're 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 trying to look and see how how does everything work. Um, whereas the, the the flip side to that, um, if you if you are traveling business, if you're traveling first class and you're you're met by the Mercedes van or or, or, or the Lexus or whatever, and you're you're on your way to the five star hotel, it's sort of a bubble and a bubble and a bubble. And where is the culture? Where is the experience? Yeah, I guess going back to your question, like in that scenario, you kind of know how it's going to work in essence, right? I mean, of course, anything can happen, but this idea of how are you going to make it work, if you thrive on that statement or that question, I should say, that I guess clears up some of the questions I had around (laughs) all the adventures you've done, man. I mean, that's the epitome of how are you going to make it work? I mean, that's like on an hourly, on a minute by minute basis in some cases, I'm sure, right? Navigating these some of these bodies of water. True, no, true. One truism is that you you definitely have to have enough money to to see your way through. You, you can't expect money to to materialize along the way, for example. But one thing that I do, um, how how I make my way financially uh, through the world is I, I'm always on the lookout for uh, historical relics. So when I'm in Africa, I'm looking there. When I'm in America, coming across America, the perfect locations are these old, these old river towns. And, uh, and so I'm also looking for treasure, um, the, the proverbial treasure. Um, for me, it's uh, w- what I look for and, and work with is uh, the historical relics, meaning old photographs, historic photographs uh, that really tell a story, and then also historic uh, books. And so... Um, I, I sell these books uh, Swan Auction Gallery at Swan Auction Gallery in New York City, and that absolutely keeps me afloat. Really? Okay. So you you actually find physical objects in these various destinations that you've just through research and kind of knowledge you 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 know you're able to resell and sustain yourself. That's one of your businesses outside of writing and journalism and some of the other stuff we're going to get into today. Correct. Yeah. Correct. That's interesting. So, yeah, it's it, it's a challenge. It's part of the challenge, but it's also part of the learning where I like to think that I'm a little bit slow. And so I have to touch something tangibly, be it the river and be it the rivers and, and towns and, and, to, and to sort of touch it and feel and make my way across. But also um, uh, the history, the photographs, the, the people stories, uh, the, the, the historic books, to touch it and learn from it. And then you... You, you have to research it to understand how to sell it. And then understanding when you do sell it, you'll never see anything like that again. Hmm. What was one of the more unique things that you found and, and sold that you had a oh, connection right. with? What, what kicked the journey, the, the, the second attempt. So there were two attempts to come across America from West Coast to East Coast. One was yes. the first one. We're going to dive deep on that, by the way. I don't oh. want to, I don't want to, yeah, I mean, we know you could talk okay, about it okay. now, but we're, I mean, absolutely. We're going to talk about your 22 Rivers project and the journey into the soul of America and all of that. So yes, but please go on. 
I just want to let people know we're not skipping over <laughs> the iconic adventures. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so w- w- what kicked it all off for me was um, a historic uh, book of Mormon. So it was it was uh, a really random one. It was the third European edition, uh, the sixth overall from the year eighteen fifty two in Liverpool, England. And but what the, the one that I had picked up uh, at the Goodwill in Silicon Valley was uh, turned out to be a corrected copy. So so the, these two brothers they they printed five thousand copies of the of the third European edition. And then, then they weren't happy with it, and so they they corrected it, and uh, it was printed on stereotypes, so the, the, the steel plate. And they actually didn't just do away with the offending punctuation, but they 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 decided that that that, that the book had sort of taken the wrong turn, and so they harkened back to one of the earlier copies, and it was corrected. They printed twenty five copies, of which uh, there were four known copies in the world, um, and. This book went to Swan and sold for, I believe, $42,000. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> which, which for me was the, the biggest paycheck I've seen in my entire life. Wow. <laughs> Wait, you found this at the Goodwill? Correct, yes. How much did you buy it for? Oh, t- to be fair, to be fair, I, I uh, it, so the Goodwills across the country, they, they, they have, they, they've sort of wisened up. And, 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 and what they do now is anything sort of vintage, anything dusty, they put it to the side and they put it on an online auction. So it's shopgoodwill.com. And, and so the, uh, certain goodwills are, uh, um, uh, take part in this across the country, including the Silicon Valley one. This was at um, $200 with five minutes out. And uh, I got it for $3,500. That sounds super obscure to me. Like, how would you know? But I guess you know. You know. Was that serendipitous or was that, did you search that? Because I know you had... You grew up Mormon. By the way, I should just formally say, Neil Moore, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. I mean, I haven't said that yet. You know, it's, it's hard to, you know, kind of start out here, but I know you lost your older brother and your mother as a teen. I don't know how old you were. I mean, that just changes your life forever. How can it not? I'm just wondering if you're willing to kind of share a bit about that and how that changed your life trajectory. I don't know how much reflection you've done on, on that point in your life. That must have been a, the biggest impact event that ever happened in your Absolutely, life. Absolutely, yeah. It's sort of, uh, so I was 13 years old and my big brother, my hero, he was two and a half years older. His name was Tom. And he, he, was, uh, he, he died uh, from injuries he sustained in a, in a car accident. He crashed, he crashed our Mustang. It was half mine. <laughs> and, um, and then... All of a sudden, the world, 13 years old, and the world just turned upside down. And uh, so things got a bit dark. And, uh, and then, but because of that, my parents uh, sent me away each summer to be with other, other children. Um, so far-flung relatives. Uh, I'd mentioned uh, North Shore of Oahu in Hawaii, and then also uh, to England. Um, and, and from that young age, I got this... I, 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 I really uh, jumped on to, to, to the idea of travel and and the and the promise of travel um, and and just um, the, the happiness that I felt uh, with travel. Uh, fast forward to um, uh, to uh, um, my late teens and I, I uh, 
my my mom was was very much on her deathbed. She had been sick for um, for over ten years with cancer, and um, and it was her dying wish. Uh, so, on my father's side, we go back. Uh, my father goes back five generations, so I represent six generations uh, in the Mormon Church. My mom joined up um, when I was about eight years old, and and she 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 joined with the zeal of a convert. So she was more religious than all of us put together. Um, and when things did turn dark, I, I was completely not religious whatsoever. I, um, I didn't see myself as missionary material whatsoever. And But for her, I would do anything. And, uh, and she was serious about it. I realize now it wasn't about the church. It absolutely was not about the religion for her or for me. Uh, she was looking for me to push myself out um, of my comfort zone and to, and to start to think about other people as opposed to myself. And so I was called uh, to go to uh, Cape Town, South Africa. And so I, I arrived when I was 19 years old. She passed um, the, the very first month that I was there. I, I got that dreaded phone call. In. But she had said before I left, she said, please don't come home for the funeral. I want you to honor me by, by staying and by serving the people. And so uh, part of the, uh, the, the whole deal was, was uh, you have the religious side, uh, and we, we very much, uh, myself and the people I, were, I, I was working with, put, put, put that completely to the side. And then the other side of it was service. And so we volunteered with International Red Cross. I was working with some of the first AIDS patients uh, in the Black townships. I was one of the first white people allowed by the National Party government, the, apart- the, 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 the government of apartheid, to move into a Black township. As the um, as the Group Areas Act uh, was was starting to starting to unwind with the release of Nelson Mandela and and I found myself really in with a front row a front row um, a front row seat to history in the making. These were the years the two years I was there in the Black Township was the years between Nelson Mandela's release from prison and his ascension to power in April '94 and. Uh, it was just this. This was democracy in action. This was one man, one vote. This was power to the people. And for me, coming from a somewhat privileged background, uh, childhood in Los Angeles, to to really detach and push myself out, it was it was a profound, uh, profound learning curve. And it was it was something absolutely beautiful and so, so much larger than myself. Wow. You were right in the thick of it there during that time. And then you have all of the stuff going on personally with your family. What a time in life for you. I mean, what, what do you, what do you, what have you carried with you from that time? I think um, for, for me, you, you look around the world uh, as we travel and we, we like to say that we see, we see happiness. We see smiles. We see laughter in some places in the world where, where we might not expect it. And I think, I think for all of us, we have to find uh, what what is it that makes us happy. And I found um, from that time, um, uh, directly directly after my mission, I, I, I became what's known as less active. So I'm, not, I'm a non-practicing member of the Mormon church. But um, uh, for me, happiness became travel and happiness became writing. Um, so I, I, I told myself, I want to be a traveler. I want to be a writer. And I have been uh, uh, since that time, and and I've been happy ever since. Mm. Is uh, less active the PC term for? I don't believe in this anymore. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it, it's, it's sort of complicated. Uh, you know, my, my, my best friend out here in Taipei, he's Jewish and, uh, and, and he's been all over the world as well. And he's, he's non, you know, non-practicing, uh, but, but he's the first one to say, doesn't mean I'm not Jewish, for example, of course. And for him, he says it's more of a culture than a race or than even a religion. And what he, he, he helped me to understand uh, uh, this part of my history as well, being six generations. You know, my great, great, great grandfather, Henry William Miller, was friends with Joseph Smith. Um, he founded uh, Council Bluffs, Iowa, what would turn into Council Bluffs, Iowa. He was uh, the first white settler uh, in the present day, the, the way the maps are drawn, the present day state of Arizona, uh, for example. He founded his, his second community there. And when I look at him, and, and even when I look at my mom, and and uh, I, I can't I can't point to them and say they were wrong, um, and I'm right, if that makes sense. And so, what I found was that it's it's part of me. And for for a while, I was embarrassed about it, and I tried to separate myself from it. And then I realized there's really nowhere to run because it's absolutely inside of me. It's 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 part of who I am. It's it's part of my culture on my father's side, and. And from my mom's ale as well. And so, so what I did was I, I actually sat down and 20 years after uh, my mission, I moved to, to Cape Town. I took an apartment, the oldest block of flats in Cape Town for six months. And I sat down and I wrote and I wrote um, the, the story, my story uh, of, of my experience there as a young missionary. And the voice, the voice that I found wasn't, it wasn't the voice of the, my 19 year old self. And it wasn't uh, an anti-Mormon voice whatsoever. It was it was how I felt inside. So twenty years twenty years later, I could identify that how I felt inside, but wasn't able to vocalize when I was a, a teen. And so, um, so it's it, 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 it's actually the real story. And um, and it, I was able to confront it and and write about it, and then push it off my plate. And so it's out there. Yeah. How, how did that work with the grieving process with your mother? Right. Um, it, uh, it absolutely helped. Um, when you put yourself in the service of other people, what we would do, um, we would, um, so we moved in and, and we were on foot. And so uh, in, in what is today uh, the largest township in South Africa, it's called Umdatsani, and it's outside of the, the port city of East London on the Indian Ocean coast. And uh, at that time, in 90, early 92, I moved in, and we, we believed that there were about 2 million people, uh, and I can promise you that there were two whites. And what I found was um, that the Xhosa people, so there's in South Africa, there's 45 tribes, there's 11 official languages now. The largest tribe is, are the Zulus, and then the second largest are the Xhosa, which was the tribe of Nelson Mandela. And the, this was the, the, the area that I was working uh, at that time. And so you, you, you put yourself in. And for the closer people, uh, again, religion completely to the side, it's, um, they, they look, the culture looks at, at, at us as brothers and sisters. And so everybody we met uh, on foot, um, everybody that we met, um, uh, we, we would shake hands African style, um, thumb around thumb. And for... For the older people to show reverence and deference, you use both hands, and so both thumbs around both thumbs. And for me, what I learned was it's the it's the human touch, it's the it's the human experience. It's 
it's taking it's taking off my mask um, and 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 looking at, at people people as people um, not not to uh, for, for so many of us I think um, for for absolutely uh, in America um, what we like to do is, is put people in boxes we like to label people these are the Republicans these are the Democrats these are these are the good guys and the bad guys or vice versa and and then with the different ethnicities and the different backgrounds and everything else, what if we take all of those monikers away and uh, and and again the, the human touch and, and and looking looking at people as people and and not looking how how uh, how we can divide ourselves because we all know how that works, but what is it that unites us? Um, what is it that we have in common and? When what we have in common is a smile and a handshake, and 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 pure love, um, and that connectivity, it's 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 something uh, for me that that was an absolute takeaway that I've been able to employ, and 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 and, and to look look for, and uh, both in myself and also with other people, um, everywhere that I've traveled since. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos, and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go! To learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten-path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why. We're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Now, back to the show. It must have been pretty special to go back there 20 years later. And I think it's interesting that you, to write the memoir... Homelands, it's called the memoir. We'll link to all your books in the show notes here. To go back to the physical area 
where you were, did you feel like, obviously you felt like that was important, like that you couldn't write this book from Taipei or wherever, you needed to be back in the place where you were 20 years prior. And did being in that environment somehow contribute to to the way it all came together energetically or, you know, creatively? I don't, I don't know what that means to you, but I'm just curious as, as to the, why you made the choice and how it actually impacted the creative work. Yeah, it's um, sort of a twofold answer to that. I think, um, yes, absolutely. Uh, to be there on the ground and to, uh, for me, I had to find, you know, as a writer, you have to find your voice, um, that true voice. And then once you have it, then you're gold. Um, so it was very important to go back that year. The thing is, though, I've been going back every year, every year of my life uh, since since I was 19. So yeah, uh, for example, I, I like to say I cheated in college, university. And what I, I, what I found was I was on the quarter system. Um, I was first in Hawaii, then I was in uh, at the University of Utah. And we're on the quarter system. And what I found was I really enjoyed summer classes, a little bit shorter, um, smaller, smaller uh, class size, so more sort of FaceTime with the professors that I liked a lot and wanted to learn from. I had my mountain bike. I would ride on the Wasatch Range there. And and come the first winter, it's it, it, it just spectacular. You know, you've got the snow. Everyone is the oohs and the ahs. The second uh, the second snow um, arrives and and it's it's still beautiful. And then the, the third snow arrives, and the city of of Salt Lake is iced over, and the city bus is coming down the hill sideways. <laughs> it's sort of a it, it, it basically uh, not not coming from the snow. And I'm talking to you in in Oslo, Norway, but. Uh, but, but, but basically for me, I, I started to dream and think to myself, you know, I, I actually took a, a notebook and I took a, a, a pencil and an eraser uh, when I was in college. And I realized I want to go to back to Cape Town more than anything for the winter, which would be their summer for three months. And, uh, but I have no money. I have no money whatsoever. And so how can I do that? And, 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 and I worked it out on paper where I could, uh, I, I, I had one friend uh, who's a hairdresser there, there in Cape Town and she was visiting me quite a bit. And anyway, so I, I, I found out if I, if I were to buy some things and, and take them with me or, sh- or ship them, uh, it turned out to be both, then I could, I could actually pay my way. And then I didn't have the money to invest, but I had a friend who had money to invest. And then I gave him all the profits and all I required was my air ticket which at that time was pretty expensive. Was, back then, it was about $3,000 to fly to Cape Town. But, um, but once I had my ticket, I had all my friends I could stay with. I was surfing. I was in the water um, from sunup until sundown for, for three months, basically, when I wasn't selling stuff. <laughs> wow. A resourceful individual you are. <laughs> so you're bouncing around. You've been out of the U.S. for a long time, and I was just wondering, living overseas, it sounds like from my research that you've lived most of the last three decades between Cape Town and Taipei, being out of the U.S., why not be in your home country? I think for me, uh, heading, heading um, to, to Africa, um, there's something, the, the, the people there, they, they talk about that red soil. Um, uh, when you when you put your hands into it, it, it just brings you back again and again and again. I feel, I feel like I I, I really live. Um, there's also 
where I came from in Los Angeles, uh, you know, going to a, I went to the first uh, Rudolf Steiner, the first Waldorf school in America, in North America. Uh, it was there in Los Angeles. And um, it's sort of a bubble. And uh, a lot of people who look just like you and, and whatnot and, uh, and, and come from the similar financial uh, uh, background and whatnot. And, and what I found was, was through travel, uh, traveling as, as, a, as a kid, going to the North Shore of Oahu, to, uh, for example, um, there t- to be white and to have a little bit of money in your pocket, you're, you're a third class citizen. You're absolutely third class. They, they, they will yell, you know, the, the derogatory term, howly, howly at you. And you have to watch your P's and Q's. I, I, I had cousins there who could protect me. But, but then, and so I started to think to myself, wait a second, if a, a third, third class in Hawaii, and then when I traveled to South Africa, where it, it was still officially segregated, absolutely segregated from, from the trains to where people physically were able to live. Um, and, and there they had said that white people, um, were, were first class. And, and so then you start to look at the whole situation and start to, I started to think to myself, wait a second, what if, what if there is no first class and what if there is no second class and, 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 and third, what if, what if we're just people, what if we're just people and, and, and how can we try to spin that positive? And, um, I, I go on tangents and I forgot your question. I apologize. <laughs> no, 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 that's okay. I mean, I just, yeah, I was exploring kind of the idea of why you've chosen not to live in your home country. Mm. Culture. I think in a place like, um, in a place like Cape Town, it's a, it's very much a melting pot. It, at that time, uh, for, for, for a number of, uh, of decades there, it was the richest city and the richest country in Africa. Of course, today in Nigeria, but the oil, but but that's not proportionate for the people. Um, uh, it's also South Africa is very much also the most disproportionate location for the haves and the have-nots for the wealth and and the extreme poverty. Uh, but with Africa, because uh, partially because of that, you have your traders are coming down, and so my friends, you know, I, I was working with African art for a number of years, and. Um, at, at the Pan African Market in on Long Street in downtown Cape Town, and and my friends are from all over Africa, and it's it, it, the, the, uh, from from the cuisine to the smiles to 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 everything, the religious background. Um, most of the people that I was dealing with who were just absolutely wonderful were Islamic, and just uh, just spectacular. The sense of family, the sense of community. And then from there, I could save my pennies. And when I had some good sales, I could adventure uh, for months and months into Egypt, all over Egypt, and then to adventure into East Africa, into Ethiopia. Um, and then what did those base. adventures look like? Were those, uh, yeah, what kind of adventures were those? Were you just backpack kind of off into the, to explore yeah. or? Right with with, uh, with with Egypt, it was I had a I had an elderly friend in Cape Town who had been um, officially his his title was draftsman. But when when the Brits were kicked out in fifty one, they brought in South Africans, and so he he came in in the fifties for five years, and he worked at um, he worked at uh, a Chicago House, so the University of Chicago's presence in Luxor, and he was he was documenting uh, the inside of the temples and the hieroglyphs and everything else and. But I, I, I listened and sort of just hollished at, 
and my, my, my mouth was just dripping with excitement when he would talk about his time in the Western Desert and his time in Old Cairo and his time uh, very much in Luxor. And so I saved my money and then I wanted to sort of see, I wanted to see these stars on the sand dunes and I wanted to, to sit on a sand dune in the Western Desert of Egypt and I wanted to um, r- right when the sun goes down, there's this poof of air that sort of hits your face. Um, and you, you, you hire the, the, the Bedouin guides to take you in, you know, for, for weeks and weeks. And, and, and then Luxor, to, to walk where he walked and sort of just in his footsteps to try to experience it um, was something. I, I invited him the last moment I invited him and I said, you have to come on, you know, push the wheelchair, whatever we have to make it happen. And he said, no, no, this is very much for a young man. And, um, and then for, for Ethiopia, uh, the big idea was um, a major hike. Uh, just previous to that, the year before, I was struck with, uh, with a cancer. Um, uh, he, he actually in Cape Town and then, and then here, here in Taipei. And uh, so I, I came here for the medical. Uh, but basically, it left me in a place where I couldn't, I couldn't walk. I couldn't walk for, for some time. And then... I had to sort of uh, crawl, and then I had to very much shuffle, shuffle my way around, and then, and then uh, weeks weeks later, um, months later, I felt, and then a full year later after the surgery, I felt I was strong enough. And I looked at um, the the north of Ethiopia as sort of this is of course was where Lucy was discovered. Um, uh, the 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 missing link. So the, 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 the first human who, who we found who, who stood upright. And I thought, how appropriate to do a big hike in northern Ethiopia uh, in the similar location to where they found Lucy. And, and for me to find the courage and to, to find the strength to be able to stand upright again and to traverse. And, and I had a friend who, who had been based there um, uh, for 10 years uh, in the north. And so he had talked about it and we were meant to do the big hike together, but as, as friends will, he canceled the last moment. And for me, I, I think it was positive because he, he set me up on it, but then I was able to do my own thing, which was beautiful. But what I did, I uh, went to Aksum, um, which is uh, extreme north, uh, the Tigray region, uh, just, just, just below the border with, with Eritrea, and uh, went to the animal market and bought myself a donkey, a two-and-a-half-year-old two donkey named Gopher. And, uh, and then Gopher and I, we set out, we, 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 we provisioned up uh, big pots of honey and bread. And uh, actually, you know, you, you can buy bread in the villages. But w- what I wanted to do was traverse the old, the old pathways that have been there for millennia. But it was all changing because the Chinese were building the roads, uh, not just there, but um, in, uh, um, whole, whole swatches of Africa, of course. And but here, everything was going to change. And some people say for the better. Some people say it's absolutely a step back. But I wanted to, I wanted to take a look and, and, and really delve into old Abyssinia um, to, to, to sort of feel and, again, touch my way across the landscape. And, and so for me, it, it, was, it, was, it was absolutely incredible because I did have the strength that the highlands there are 12,000 feet. They're by and large Christian. Uh, the lowlands are tributaries of the White Nile in Tigray, and um, and the lowlands are Islamic. And I like to say that the that the Islamic people make better coffee. Uh, I, I think it's something to do with the spice. Uh, 
that they put inside. But again, it's the culture. It's the, it's the, um, it's the extreme, the extreme um, aspect of, of man against nature. And also um, how, how, how we come together. How is it that the Christians and the Muslims can, 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 uh, can work together and be in the, in the similar geographic location and, and somehow get along. And, uh, and, and that was just a, a, a hike and a half. <laughs> how, yeah, how many miles was that hike approximately? I should know. I, 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 I bought the topographical maps from the, from the map like department. Just approximately. Jeez. I was three weeks, three weeks okay. of hiking. Um, yeah, yeah I, I'm not sure how many miles, a so lot of a pretty, miles. I mean, you bought, you had to buy a, a mule, I guess. So that's a, <laughs> right. <laughs> All of a sudden you're just like, Hey, I own this mule. That's really interesting. I didn't expect it. Uh, I, cool. I, I couldn't afford the mule. I actually went for the donkey, which is just a little bit oh, of a step donkey. down financially. Okay. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Congrats on being cancer free. I mean, how long have you been cancer free now? Uh, this year, thank you very much. Uh, this year, it's it's ten years, and so I'm still going through the CT scans once a year. And uh, but it's yeah, it's 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 pretty much in the rearview mirror at this stage. Okay, wonderful. So when did the canoeing come into the picture? You, you just mentioned this adventure in Ethiopia. Was this like sort of the first bigger adventure in that way, like in the outdoors type of thing? That was kind of the seed for perhaps these grander type adventures that you've now gone on several of them. We can talk about some of them specifically. I want to dive into the, well, I mean, you had the trip down the Mississippi. I mean, according to Wikipedia, you are the quote, first person known to paddle a canoe solo and continuously across the United States from West coast to East coast, 22 rivers and waterways, 22 States, 22 months. That's poetic. I don't know if that happened randomly, but that's pretty incredible. You just alluded to the fact that during the first attempt, you ended up having to kind of quit. And yeah, I want to get into all this. I I don't know when the canoeing thing became a thing because there are a lot of ways to travel, of course. And perhaps that's, that's not the easiest. Maybe in some places it is the easiest. I don't really know. I don't have much canoeing experience outside of, you know, summer camp on a lake or whatever, but when did it grab you? And yeah, let's just dive into the, some of the adventures there. It, yeah, it, it started, it started with a friend. Um, so I have a, a French friend here in Taipei that I worked with, uh, many years back and we would have drinks at the bar, uh, uh after work and whatnot. And he was struck down with cancer, um, pancreatic cancer. And, um, he was, he decided he elected to go back to France, uh, Montpellier, to, uh, to the university there to have sort of an experimental type, type surgery. But when he went, then he was going to spend the summer and he was going to come back. And uh, the last night at the bar, I opened myself up and uh, I hearkened back to what my mom, so uh, rewind to South Africa. And I, I served the two years as a missionary. I came home and then I was able to look at, look at the, um, at the, um, at the program of her funeral and to read, to read the eulogy. And there was a story that I had never known about my mom. And so uh, uh, back in the eighties in Los Angeles, she was in and out of hospitals the, you know, for, for most of my childhood. And, and in one hospital, there had been a young man. So she would have been in her thirties or, or late thirties or early forties. And so when she says young man, he must've been in his twenties, but he had no friends. Friends were not visiting. Family were not visiting. And he was all by himself. And, one day she opened up herself to him. And what she said was, I'd like you to think, to really think if there's anything that I can do for you. Um, 
any wish whatsoever, I want you to know that if it's, if it's in my power, uh, then the answer is already yes. And according to um, the transcript there, um, uh, he thought and he thought, and then he said, you know, I really like balloons. And the following day, the, the, the room that they shared in the hospital was full of balloons. And so in that spirit, it's because my mom did that and I learned about it. The only reason I got into canoeing, um, I opened myself up to my friend Louis at the bar um, uh, here at the Shannon, which is what I would name my canoe later, the Shannon after the old now defunct pub. And, uh, and I said, Louis, in the, in the name of my mother, in the spirit of my mother, if there's anything, I want you to go, go have the surgery, um, convalesce uh, for the summer, and you come back. And when you do, if there's anything that I can do for you, um, just, just think of it like a, like a blank check. The answer is yes, I will do it. And he thought and he thought there that last night at the bar. Then he said, you know, I've always wanted to paddle a canoe up the Amazon River. And it, the idea of a canoe and long distance, and it just blew me away. And so Louis went, he had a surgery, he, 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 uh, he got lots of rest. He did come back. Louis is still alive today. It's amazing. These, these three French doctors came in, they worked a miracle. And he came back and I said, Louis, I've been saving money no matter what, uh, what it is. We are going to Amazonia. We're going to, we're going to do this. And, uh, and he was serious about it. It, it. When he was a teenager, he had um, he, he had planned and plotted with his best friend, and, and like friends do, we talked about the friend backed out. So he'd carried the stream with him, and but then he said, "No, no, um, I've thought about it, and the the big adventure that I I'm going to do if I do another adventure, it'll be with my wife." And I said, "That that's fair, that's okay." But then I stumbled into a book called Mississippi Solo by the great writer, uh, Paris-based um, Eddie L. Harris who I'm so lucky to be in touch with today. He's just a, a big hero of mine. Um, as a novice, he traversed the Mississippi River. And, um, and so I read the book, and the more I read the book, uh, only because of Louis and his dream, then I started to think to myself, I can't say it out loud. Oh, no, I, I'm going to do the Mississippi. And then I, I stumbled into journalism and then I had the idea with the economic downturn, uh, which today we call the Great Recession. It looked back back in uh, 09, uh, it looked like the world was spin, spin tailing into full-blown depression. And the reporting at that stage were the big financial capitals, New York City, Singapore, Hong Kong. And my thinking was, that's not the story. The story is the common people, the middle of America, the country where the whole fiasco started. Um, and, uh, and, and what practical advice would the middle of America have for the rest of the world? And, uh, and so I had this, this grand idea, what if I launched the canoe and then chronicle stories uh, right the way down? Not economic stories, but um, human interest stories, the, the human face of the economic downturn. And it just, it, it worked like gangbusters. I was able to, to sort of juxtapose the wildness of the canoe and the, and the adventure and the travel and uh, with my budget as well to be able to camp on islands and whatnot. And, and then to walk into a town and to pull off stories of international consequence again and again and again, it set me up. But, but to answer your question, <laughs> very long-winded answer here, I met a gentleman at the top of that river in 2009 who 
who opened my eyes to the possibilities. And this guy was larger than life. His name is Dick Conant. His story has now been chronicled by uh, New Yorker uh, writer Ben McGrath. The book is called, from this past year, the, the book is called Riverman. And it's, um, it's sort of a modern day classic. And it's it just absolutely incredible. But, um, but he wasn't just doing a river like myself. This gentleman, Dick Conant, he was connecting rivers. And he was going, he was starting on the Mississippi that year, and he was on what would turn out to be the greatest adventure of his life. He was going uh, all the way to Norfolk, Virginia, and he got there 10 months later and sent me a postcard. But um, he taught me uh, that the, the rivers connect. And so when I finished the Mississippi River, I went back to Africa, I went back to East Asia, and back and forth and back and forth. But my mind was thinking, if I was to connect rivers, if I was to unfurl the map across the kitchen table and unfurl the map in my mind, where would be my point A and where would be my point B? And, uh, and, and then I thought I had the crazy idea. What if I went coast to coast? So naturally the idea was East coast to West coast, you know, the, the Anglo migration of America, um, go West young man. But I come from the West coast and I, uh, I talked to some friends and I thought, wait a second, what if I turned it around and went the wrong way, went west to east? Um, and that's what I did. It turned out to be a, a major challenge and something unique and something absolutely beautiful. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press. But I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago and <laughs> immediately... I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour-over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years. I don't even remember how long it's been, and they are under 50 bucks, so they also make an exceptional gift, thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever Zero to Travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people, on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me. Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Now, back to the show. Yeah, you mentioned Dick. I know that there was a sort of tragic ending to to his story. They He disappeared and then they've never been able to find him as far as I know from my research, right? I mean, how, how much, how much were you guys in touch? It sounds like he was a big uh, inspiration for you for the, the broader cross country journey. Yeah. 
yeah, he was he was a major influence for me. Um, just a, his his words, you know, you know, you can string them together. They they would reverberate in my mind for years and years after he said them, um, like sort of a scratchy, like the, the hook of a scratchy song. And and then then I think all of us, when we look at the idea of adventure, when we look at the idea of travel, the beautiful thing is for ourselves we can work out what is our point A and what is our point B and maybe C and D and E <laughs> and it can go on. But, but, but to do something grand, to touch places in our lifetime that, that are historically, I mean, that, that are so important and that, that are just beautiful and breathtaking. And, and um, so, but the interesting thing was I knew Dick Conant for two and a half days. We paddled together. He taught me a lot of things not just about uh, long distance canoeing, but also about life. Um, he talked about, um, uh, again, the idea he would save about $10,000 before he would do a big trip. And he was what society refers to as homeless. You know, he was the first person in my life uh, who was technically homeless that I had taken the time to talk to. And it turns out, um, you know, I, I like to say uh, for all of us, really, when we travel and we push ourselves out, there are people, there are characters in this world, in, in our life experience that we'll bump into, that have the power to transform how we look at ourselves and also uh, 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 how we look at the world and, and how we approach the world. And, and so um, we paddled off and on. We kept on bumping into each other. I wanted to celebrate when we got to uh, the first big milestone for us on the Mississippi was Minneapolis. The first big city, it was 500 river miles on the map, the first lock and dam, um, the first of 26 locks and dams uh, uh, down to St. Louis. And so there was this uh, Esquire magazine had called uh, um, this bar called Nice Polonaise, this, this Polish polka bar, completely unpretentious. Esquire magazine called it the best bar in America a, a couple years previous. And so my friends in Minneapolis had taken me there before I launched out and I, I wanted to celebrate there with him. And I said, I want to buy you a gimlet. And, and he said, a gimlet? And I said, yeah, and, and they have Polish food. And he said, Polish food? He said, I'll be there, I'll be there. And, and I went to the bar and my, my, friends, my friends came and, and they left. And they said, Neil, come on. And I said, no, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay and close it down. And I waited and waited and he never, he never pitched. He never arrived. And the whole way down the river, um, I, I, you know, it gets pretty wide, and you paddle, you paddle, you're paddling along the side of the river, uh, hugging the hugging the shoreline. And I would look across the river, and I would see it's it's probably a log, but it just might be Dick Conant. And so I pick up my spirit and and sort of whistle, and I was going to laughing to myself because I was going to surprise him, and had a second wind, and I would cross the river, which is which can be treacherous, and every single time it was a log. I never saw Dick again, but the, the beautiful thing is with with uh, with Ben McGrath's reporting first with uh, a couple different pieces in the New Yorker, and then with his research uh, for the full blown book on Dick, um, he he sort of turned into the conduit, the, the conjurer of Dick Conant for me. And so when I launched out that first time in 2018, when I launched out. Um, you know, you're going from one of the most dangerous waterways in the world, Astoria, Oregon, it's the, called the Columbia River Bar, right there at the mouth where the, that great storied river pushes out 
and then the the Pacific pushes right back in. And um, I made my way around Tongue Point in the mouth of the river, and I made my way around and and got to a safe place. And I, I sent a message to, to to Ben McGrath in New York City, and I said, Ben, uh, I can feel him with me. I feel him laughing. This whole journey is because of him. Um, and uh, and and Ben's words, what he said was, Neil, they've just found a skull. They found a skull in the area where Dick went missing on his final adventure um, uh, in the North Carolina region there. Um, and but it turns out it, it was it wasn't Dick's skull. It was it was another boater who had gone missing. And Ben, what he said was, please, please be careful, Neil. Um, but uh, but all along the way, I was able to, to be in contact um, uh, um, with, with, with Ben and then through Ben. You know, ben, for example, that night at the bar that I had missed Dick, he found his journals and he transcribed them for me. And in Dick's words, he, got to, he did get to the bar. And, uh, and he said, I've just taken a swivel stool seat at Nye's, at Nye's and the barmaid has just given me my ice cold sign of beer. And the band has just taken the stage. And where is Neil? And I'm self-deprecating by nature. Dick Conant was very much self-deprecating by nature. And I think both of us must have thought maybe, maybe, maybe the other person just didn't care or maybe, but it turns out we both did. And, uh, and then come New York at the very end of the, the, the second attempt, which were successful for me and in 2020 and 2021, when I got to New York, I was able to celebrate and have that drink. We had that gimlet together, um, uh, Ben McGrath and myself on the banks of the Hudson, which is where Ben met Dick Dick Conant on what would turn out to be his final adventure. We smoked a couple of uh, Monte Cristo uh, number fours and and celebrated the life of our friend. And it was it, w- it was something absolutely uh, incredible. The adventure aspect of this, the danger, the risks. I mean, you just mentioned finding skulls of, of missing boaters and things like that. I just want you to paint the picture of the reality of this journey because, you know, it's easy. It can be easy to kind of visualize, especially the Mississippi float, right? It's kind of like you could imagine this sort of idyllic version of I'm just paddling down the Mississippi and talking to interesting characters on the way. And, you know, meanwhile, the reality of, you know, giant, giant ships going by that can run you over and all of the, the different things, uh, let alone, I don't know if you have to do any portaging on the Mississippi. Yeah, I just wanted you to paint the picture on some of the the challenges involved, I suppose, so people can kind of walk in your shoes or paddle in your shoes, I guess, for, for a little while to kind of understand the day-to-day life. You know, we're talking about almost two years of your life crossing west to east and then the mississippi one i don't know how long that was but and, yeah yeah that, that that one was four months and 22 days and then okay. the the what's the with second, the 22 man what's with the 22 <laughs> your lucky I was number born, it's my lucky number i was born on the 22nd one one two two everything when i was a kid everything happened to me on the 22nd so yeah. i looked at this I, I look at sort of positive positive sort of uh the 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 the, the Talisman, this is sort of the, the positive thinking. So you take something positive and you put it out there, and then you're able to you're able to make your way through these tough times. And you you absolutely go through tough times. We all go through tough times. But as a long distance canoeist, what I'm doing is um, 
I'm breaking, I'm on an island by and large. I like to camp on islands to be away from most animals and to be, be away from uh, people as well um, and not to be on private property. And, uh, and then you're breaking camp an hour before first light. Um, and then it takes about an hour to break down the tent, to get the canoe ready, to put all your worldly belongings inside of your canoe. And then you push out and you push out at first light. Um, and it fe- for me, it feels that there's nothing more, there's nothing more soulful. There's nothing more pure. There's there it's for me, it's a definite, the real, the true definition of bliss is pushing off an Island um, at first in concert with first light with all the possibilities of the day ahead. I might be coming down a river. I very well might be coming up a river. Uh, and then you're, you're, you're paddling for all you're worth all day long. And then in a perfect, perfect scenario, you're going to, you're going to get to that next Island in concert with last light. Um, and then th- there's all the well wishes along the way there's, you know, I like to say in, in, in bright sun and, and beautiful weather in a red canoe, you're everybody's friend. People smile, they wave. That's a good guy. He's out there on the red canoe. He's, but the moment the weather turns, the more the moment the curtain of darkness falls, and you're still out there, you know the heavens open and the rain just descends, or the wind and everything else. At the time when you could really use a friend, when you could use a friendly, uh, uh, a friendly. Well, why don't you come and, and, and pitch your tent here, here, here on our on our lawn uh, along the river? You don't get that because because now a they can't see you, but but b you're a suspect, and so. You have to, you know, for the longest time, I was a younger brother as a kid and every fight, every would-be fight I would get in, I would just tap him on the shoulder and I'd say, Tom, can you take care of those, those guys? <laughs> yes. And he would go and intimidate, you know, he would, he would, he was, a, he was tough. Uh, I'm not tough. And, um, but I, I had to learn, um, on, on this journey, I had to learn how to stand up for myself. You have to be able to, when push comes to shove, um, you have to heave ho and there's nobody there to take, to, to help you out except for yourself. You have to, you find the strength within yourself to, to make it, make it to that safe haven, um, to make it to, to terra firma, to land. And, um, th- there's all sorts of obstacles. There, there's, there's wind. I'm always looking at wind. Um, and, and, and I have my, my fail safe where if it's above a certain wind then I just don't go. And, and I'm not really in a rush. I'm just beholden to the seasons, uh, the, the way that the, the map worked out. But there, there were two uh, full line, uh, straight line derechos that came across when I was on the Missouri River. Um, there were there were a lot of tornadic activity. I took cover from multiple tornadoes. By design, I just missed the hurricane season in the Gulf. Um, but I, I startled a, 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 a grizzly. Um, there, there, there was an experience, an encounter with a wolf on an island on the, on the Columbia River. My, my, my canoe was bumped hard by a bull shark uh, repeatedly uh, in the Gulf of Mexico in open water, a 12-mile crossing in the night to get to a barrier island. Um, and, and that because the barrier islands are safer, to, as dangerous as it is in, in an open canoe. Some people think it's crazy. But it was safer to, to, to wait for the right weather and to navigate to connect the barrier islands to get into Mobile Bay, I thought then the coast with 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 all of the all the people and and with the the oil refineries and all of this humanity um, can sometimes be overbearing too. But but 
but the, 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 there's there's really a, ba- a balance in all things. I think this is where happiness comes from too, one of the ingredients of happiness. The balance being, yes, you have the bright sun and you have the beautiful days. And then you have, you have, um, you have incredibly rough weather where you, 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 have, to, you have to fight uh, uh, to be able to, to physically make it. And then the, the journey itself as well. Um, it, again, it's that balance between the wildness and the community, between, um, between town and country. And you really get both. You get, you get, you feel wild. You have nature at water level. Uh, you have nature literally all the way around yourself and your craft. And, and then you step into a town. It might be a few days. It might be a week. It might be a month later. You step into a town or a city. And now you're ready to, 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 to reconnect with humanity again. And it's just, um, it's, it's also the, the canoe, it's the first mode of transport in North America. Um, the first roads were built along the rivers, the first communities, the first settlements, the first cities, all on these rivers. There's a lot of history. Um, and uh, by, by traveling uh, in this way, it's also a, a, a nod I like to think uh, to the first people who, who came well before us too. Hmm. How do you think uh, spending so much time in nature, as you just described, connects you to a place in a different way? You you, you wouldn't you wouldn't see it. Um, I think you you can really miss it um, if you're traveling in a car. If you're traveling, I don't know. Maybe even in a, the, the the old slog of the bicycle with with the cement and the, 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 the path before you and sort of the, um, w- when you're on the water, you know, I, I, I like to think, I, I, my mind doesn't work scientifically whatsoever, but I like to, I like the correlation between our bodies are by and large 70% water and the surface of the earth is by and large 70% water. And for me, especially when I was younger, I had all the stress. That's why I was in the water in Cape Town as, as a young, as a young man. Because when I immerse myself into the water, all that stress washes away. You know, I, I talk to old timers with their cars parked, looking over the river, looking over the Mississippi, for example, on this last trip. And I, I asked the old timer, when you, when you look at the river, um, uh, what do you think? And he said, it's a, it's a soothing, it's a soothing, it's a calming experience for me. And when you put yourself on a body of water and it's fluid and there's no guarantees. There's all sorts of obstacles that, 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 can, that, that can end things pretty quickly. But, but there's, something, there's something so beautiful about it to the point where for 675 days uh, from the West Coast to the East, I found myself laughing, this involuntary laugh of, of freedom, of pure freedom. I wasn't doing that when I was hiking um, across Northern Ethiopia. I, I wasn't doing that on, on various road trips that I've taken or, or like a other giddiness adventures. kind of. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's almost like a connection where there comes a time when, when you, the analogy of, for example, going into the township when I was a teenager, I like to think you push yourself out of your comfort zone and you detach, you let go. You know, there was the moment when I was being wheeled down to surgery uh, 10 years ago. And we like to be in control of everything. We like to, we like to sort of have our finger on the button and we like to, to plot our own course. And we have to be, we have to be in control of ourselves and everything around us. And, 
what I learned even coming down for that surgery was there's no guarantees. There are no guarantees. I might not make it out. And that's okay. I came to peace. I came to a peace. I, I apologized to everybody that I could. I, I, I accepted apologies in my mind from people that I thought might have offended me. And I really felt ready. I, I detached. And with the mode of transport with a canoe on the water, you're literally pushing yourself out. And, and you detach. And in that detachment is the peace. In that detachment, where, where there are no guarantees, you're going to make it to the other side. There are no guarantees you're going to survive that day. There's, I mean, there are a lot of near-death experiences, I would say. But, but by, the, the, those were rare. And by and large, it's, it's that nature which, um, which can encourage, which can, which can sort of scuttle you along and which can also come down and smack you around and reprimand a, a reprimand in sermon as well. <laughs> Humble you. Yeah. It sounds like it's, uh, well, I mean, it's travel, it's adventure, but it's also, it's also, it sounds like to me, it's also spiritual in some ways. For sure. I, I would say so. Yeah. I, I don't consider myself a religious person, but, um, but there's something, there's something there. Um, and you look at different cultures uh, along the way, from the from the Native American, uh, uh, the indigenous people that I was able to to, to befriend and, and document um, their stories. Uh, uh, to start with, on the Columbia River, for them, their god is the salmon, the spring salmon that, 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 that that's on their plates when they're born, that sustains them through their lives, and then is on their plates when they pass, um, there to say farewell to them and. That there, there's that relationship uh, uh, very much. You see it with different cultures between between nature and humanity as well, which which is just mm. awesome. Just to give people a sense uh, of the accomplishment, as if they're they don't have one already, but uh, just to add to it, add to the legend that is Neil here. I read that you had to do a 170 mile portage from Syracuse to Albany. Is that accurate? Is that the longest you've done? And it's for people that don't understand what a portage is. I think what you're doing is putting the canoe on your head and carrying everything you own basically. And just hiking instead of just hiking though, you're also hiking with a canoe. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is adding to the mythology or is this real? Yeah. I just kind of wanted to give people a sense of these portages because this is, I don't know how much this was a part of the trip, but wow. I mean, what an impressive physical feat as well, this whole thing. I, I completely, uh, just th thank you. <laughs> I actually, I cheated. So okay. when you look at the, you look at the map, it was 7,500 miles. This is why uh, I asked the questions. About, you know. yeah, yes. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> about 500 of them were portage miles. There were you know, countless dams making my way around. And then there are certain stretches. The Continental Divide was 60 miles. There was a portage in uh, Idaho that was turned out to be 100 miles, just over 100 miles. And then, yeah, but the longest one was the, uh, the second half of the Erie Canal. They, they closed down a little bit early because of COVID and, uh, and, and also the season was coming on. Um, but what I do for the portages um, is I have a fall harness. So I have a friend who, in Portland, Oregon, who works, an old friend. We were actually friends, teenagers in Africa together. And uh, so I got to see him. And uh, meet his family and whatnot for the first time in you know, decades. It was just awesome. And then uh, he owns an aluminum rail company, so he, his guys are uh, his employees are up there on you know on these new buildings and 
they've got the fall harness and they're, they're putting the aluminum rails on the balconies and whatnot in the buildings. And so he gave me this old um, uh, fall harness. Then I went to the, the everything, everything for me is secondhand. So I went to the secondhand uh, uh, boating supply store there in Portland, uh, which is now gone, unfortunately, and bought an old uh, seven eighths inch uh, shipping rope. I would connect. So I put my limbs through the, through the fall harness I connect the, the rope to the back of, of the fall harness and then connect it to the front of the canoe. Then I bought, I finally found after four attempts, I found the right wheels. So these proper expedition wheels from Canada, I had shipped down and those go under the canoe. You strap that in, you throw all your world belongings inside. And now you're pulling like a mule as, a, as opposed to walking with a mule or a donkey. Okay, but that's not uh, cheating. You're still, can't, you're still, I mean, you just <laughs> fashioned your power. own way, but yeah, it's still, I mean, it's right. still pretty damn impressive, I would say. Then, yeah, and the, the Continental Divide, I mean, you're going, you're going up to an elevation of 6,300 feet. And oh. the, the funny thing is, the funny thing is getting up there, you know, from the, from the Pacific coast, it's about 1,100 miles. Every single inch of that is uphill all the way to McDonald Pass uh, in middle of Montana on the top of the divide. The watershed where all the water from that part of the country goes, goes east and west. But the toughest part, and I've done it twice because I came over the divide twice, um, uh, as it turned out, with, with both attempts. Um, both times, when you come down the divide into the capital of Montana, which is Helena, um, I had to rest up for a week because my legs were like jelly. You're using all different muscles coming down a mountain as you are, as, as opposed to coming uh, all the time, pulling and, 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 and coming up a mountain, mountains and whatnot. So that, that, that was sort of funny. But, but I, the, the, the beautiful thing about the Erie Canal was this, you know, I was on the towpath, the, the towpath, which is where, which is where the horses and right. the mules would, 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 yes, it was nice and flat and, and overnight, historically, along that stretch of, uh, of New York, um, overnight, you had these port towns, these port villages. And the villages, the way they're built, they're, they're, they, they, they face the canal. And so when you're on the towpath, when you get to a village, then, then now you can, you, you can hang your hat. You can sort of, again, find that rhyme and reason of the place and you meet characters and you find stories and, and just great people everywhere you go. But but going from village to village, um, uh, and I had plenty of time. It was there was there was no negative uh, whatsoever. You 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 work to get there, but then you can rest yeah. up, and then you're looking forward to the next one. Good vibes. You meet the the stumble upons, you call them, right? Yes. The, these yes. are the chance encounters, the people you meet by chance. Can you talk about that? What that term, and you know, some of maybe share a story or two. Absolutely. So. Uh, as a would-be journalist, you, you're looking to sort of, uh, in the past, like for, go, rewind to the Mississippi River. Um, I didn't know how many stories I did, but I was invited to CN's, CNN Center afterwards. Uh, the producer I work with there, he was taking me around, introducing me to everybody. And, um, and the, one, the one senior producer asked, so, so how many stories did Neil do on the Mississippi? And he said he did 50. Yeah. 50 this stories. Was, you were doing this for CNN at the time, right? Correct. Citizen journalist. Yeah. Correct. Yes. Yeah. The, the golden age of citizen journalism. That's, that's, that's no longer. <laughs> and th that term has become a negative, unfortunately. But what I was doing, I thought was, was fun and unique and, 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 
and uh, of substance. It was substance because it was going out to the world and it was, it was creative. Great stories. Yeah. Great stories. Yeah. Thanks. So these are stories where you walk into a town. Some of them were pre-scripted. Some of them were stumbled upon, but then, then um, uh, you basically have a pretty good idea. So when, with that experience, when I looked years later, when I looked at, at going from coast to coast, I actually plotted out a hundred story stop towns. And I, I looked at the history of every single one. It was a lot of fun. And I, I had some story ideas and, uh, for, depending on, on the history of, of, of various towns and whatnot and the people, I was looking for stories of, of, um, of culture story, the uh, heavy on the immigrant stories, this sort of thing. But what happened was the second, the, the, the second successful, um, uh, attempt, I launched out and within the first month, month and a half, everything closed down. The penny dropped and the world was plunged into full-blown COVID. And uh, I found myself on the coming up the Columbia River in between the first two United States to, to shelter in place. Governor Brown in Oregon and Governor Jay Inslee in Washington State quite rightly um, ordered uh, shelter in place. And um, I, I received permission from the Nez Perce people um, to continue uh, when I got to Idaho, which was free and clear at that time. I would I, I received permission uh, to to cross their tribal lands. I received permission from the Corps of Engineers to to come up the Snake River, which is technically a, a federal waterway. And early on, I realized I'm not going to be able to do stories like I've done before to walk into a Native American reservation and try to pull off a story or to walk into various communities, especially communities of color. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and so it turned out to be chance encounters. What I, what I ended up doing was documenting um, chance, chance encounters and, and talking to Ben and talking to other journalist friends uh, uh, at that time, what they said, what Ben said was, Neil, I think your storytelling is actually going to be enhanced. It's going to be enhanced because it's going to be a change, change of pace for you. And it was beautiful. All walks of life, um, ethnicities, cultures, backgrounds, I got to see it all. And, uh, and I just, the, again, the, the stumble upons, which... A lot of times are the most beautiful pre-scripted uh, or sorry unscripted um, uh, encounters, and um, it, 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 it turned out to be a, a new experience for me, and and something that was uh, far far and above my, my wildest dreams of success. Mm. I mean, the chance encounters and the best parts of travel, right? Any type of travel. The relationship with your home country, you've been spending all these decades away and out of the country. How did, how did this trip allow you to get reacquainted with your home country of the USA? And how did it change your relationship with it, if it did at all? Yeah, I, you know, you, you, um, you travel as a traveler. Uh, you, you're, you hang your hat in various uh, communities and cultures around the world. And, and you meet other travelers. Here in Taipei, I'm friends with a whole international crowd from the Dutch to the French to the Germans to you name it. A lot of Canadians, Australians, Kiwis, they're, they're all around it. And we're all travelers. And so you, you hypothesize about maybe the, the perfect location. For me, um, it's been, it's still out there. It's, it's still going to at some point happen, hopefully. But Timbuktu in Mali, just to get to Timbuktu 
you know, you have to travel all the way across the country to, to get there. Um, and, and then there's Old Delhi. You know, there's that one uh, guest house um, right across the mosque um, with the call to prayer that wakes you up each morning. And, and how beautiful will that be? And the mass humanity uh, uh, versus the, you know, the, 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 um, the wildness. And so to really put yourself uh, uh, into the thick of everything. But then the, the big epiphany for me was l- looking for 30 years for this adventure and for this travel. What if the greatest adventure of my life was to go right back to, to where I started, um, to, to my own backyard, so to speak, and, and to really explore it, to properly explore it. And so when I looked at the map, I really wanted to look at a cross-section of the country. I wanted to come into the south. I wanted to, I wanted to go through Appala- uh, Appalachia. I, I wanted to, to see and experience and meet the people that I've dreamed about um, uh, th- these places and these cultures and this history to learn from them. Um, I-, I really wanted to feel my feel my way across and and see so many places. And and when I would get to a new state, you know, I'd be on the Ohio, a thousand miles, uh, technically nine hundred eighty one miles coming up the Ohio River. When I would get to a new state, okay, fond farewell to Kentucky, and now here is West Virginia. West Virginia, and I'm going to step into it. It's, it's, it's just going to be, and, and to, to attach myself to it for, for a portion of my life. And the people I'm going to meet, it was just, uh, it was just positively incredible. It sounds like you really feed off of the, that energy of, you mentioned the pushing off the bliss of the morning light and the possibilities of the day. It sounds like you really, that's the energy, the possibility, the energy of possibility. Who are you going to meet? What's going to happen? Really keeps you going. Um, are you able to carry that into your sort of daily life when you're not on an adventure? That attitude. You have you have what's referred. What's the term? You have what's referred to, and people might laugh uh, who are not familiar with with sort of uh, hardcore long distance expeditions. But you have expedition withdrawal, and so you. It's almost like a, a sadness, and you have to be careful because you, you can you can slide into depression pretty quickly when you're on the adventure. And and this might sound ridiculous as well, but when I was on this last journey, you know, the two almost two years, it felt like I had been on the journey my whole life. I had always been on the journey, and it felt like I always would be on the journey until towards the end that the, the, the communities are counting down to New York City and. And I realized with great sadness, you know, that the, that final bittersweet day, it is going to come to an end. But, but, uh, but then now you have to step back into uh, non-expedition. Uh, but you're plotting and planning for what might come next. And I think a perfect, a perfect place to do that is out in in the world. And then from from out in the world, be it. Now I'm, I'm in Taipei now. I'll be in Cape Town in January, um, uh, back to Africa, and uh, and from there you, you can sort of get your head right. You're surrounded by the culture again, so it's it's all positive. And now you can look at the world and say, where might be next? What does the future of America look like after spending so much time traveling through, thinking about it, assessing, talking to the people, considering, exploring? I think. Um, yeah, it's it, 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 there, we all know the divisiveness. We all know, I mean, the, the extreme polarization, the extreme disconnect, if you will. Um, that's front and center. But uh, so especially when you look at the news media, and, and, and not to say the news media is necessarily wrong, but 
But when you highlight and underscore the negative, um, we all see that and we all know that. But but I think um, what I found, what I found was people helping people, people, um, people, people from, from, from different, from different economic standpoints and, and, and from different ethnicities and, and backgrounds. This is what America is, of course, we're a melting pot. But I saw connectivity and, and I, I'm a perpetual optimist. I have friends around me who are realists who try to ground me. Um, but, uh, but I think especially when times are tough, and uh, so we saw that with COVID, we, we, we see that with that polarization. When times are tough, this is when, I don't think it's an American trait, it's a world trait. We've all seen it. When, when you're in a war zone, for example, this is when people roll up their sleeves and they help each other out. Um, and instead of getting caught up in all the negative and, and, and the, the, have you heard about the atrocities in the next village and the next village? Um, when you stop and you look look around you, what do you see? You see people helping people um, in tough times, and uh, and I think America is going through an incredibly tough time right now. But I think I think all of us, uh, it's important to take a step back and to take off to take off those masks and to and to try to see as opposed to how we can disconnect. How is it that we can connect? And I'm hoping I'm hoping that uh, hope me on hope that 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 we can get through this next election cycle and that we can uh, uh, hopefully find some positive ground, some, some middle ground together. One thing we didn't get a chance to talk about yet. I was just curious on what lessons you learned from the first attempt where you ended up uh, in, I, I forget where it was. Was it North Dakota or? Correct. Yes. Yeah. And, and then you quit and that's a, quite a long way to go. But then you had the perseverance to do this again some years later. What did what did the the quitting and the doing it again? What did that whole experience teach you? I think yeah, I think um, you know you have to you have to will yourself. You, you, part of that strength that you find within yourself. I was um, I was uh, I was a uh, I was a Boy Scout as a kid, so this is where I learned some of the. Some some of the bushcraft and some of the the, the, the wildness to, to appreciate the wildness, but I found by getting my Eagle Scout by going through with it, and my, my father taught me that when you start something, you finish it. You finish it. How, no matter how hard it is, you have to finish it. And um, and so in my mind, uh, you know, that, that first day I launched out of the Mississippi, going back to two thousand nine, the economic downturn. The very first night I made camp. Uh, <laughs> Uh, this older gentleman whose, whose land it was, who lets the kayakers and the canoeists stop there. He, he came down and he took one look at me with, I was struggling with the brand new tent to try to put the tent up. And he wasn't trying to be rude or funny. This was an old timer who's multi-generations on that land. And he's seen countless people start the Mississippi. He took one look and he said, they haven't left, have they? Your family, your friends haven't left because there's no way in hell you're going to make it. And, um, and I said, no, no. I'm going to make it to New Orleans, and I did. It's it, a lot of it, a lot of it's right here, I think. And, but the the first the first go around, um, there were a lot of obstacles against me. There was record flooding. Um, it was the twenty locals were talking calling it the twenty year flood on the Columbia. That year, two thousand eighteen, I came up eight hundred miles up against that flooding, um, to the point where you're just. 
I couldn't close my hands. You're fighting Mother Nature. Uh, and, it, and Mother Nature, we all know Mother Nature always wins. <laughs> but then, then I fought uh, up against flooding on the, on the Spokane. I portaged more than 100 miles in the Centennial Trail, beautiful trail, right along the, the Spokane River from Spokane to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Um, and then I couldn't even touch, I couldn't touch the Clark Fork because it was the 100-year flood on the Clark Fork. The, 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 Just one <laughs> thing after the next, yeah. Yeah, I had a near-death experience on a tributary of the Clark Fork, um, almost died and lost most of my gear. And it was just, uh, it was really touch and go. What, what, like the like the canoe flipped over or what? what? Well, there was one river. It's called the St. Regis. The St. Regis, it's a glacial river. It's small. It, uh, it comes, it's a tributary of the Clark Fork. And it was going my way, the first river going my way in 2018. And I looked at it. I studied it. I, I thought, okay, I camped alongside for a couple of nights first. Then I got in. And I got in and I was just seventh heaven. Making my way around, I think, I-90. So this is Western Montana. I-90 um, comes over and you sort of you sort of snaking under I-90, uh, Interstate 90, the big highway, elevated highway. And I came around the one turn and there was a fly fisherman, the first fly fisherman I had seen. Um, it was just uh, coming out of winter. It was just, uh, it, was, it, was, it was early um, early spring. And I wanted to wave, but I had to concentrate. So I came around the turn and I nodded and he nodded. I came around the turn and that's when I saw um, a tree, a massive tree was blocking the entire river and the current was just sucking me in. And um, very quick story, if I can try to make it quick, my mind in a second, my mind went back to when I was eight years old When I lived in West, West Los Angeles. We lived in Westwood. Um, my mom was going to UCLA and I, I went to that, the, 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 the Waldorf school, the private school in the Valley, San Fernando Valley. And when we'd miss the bus on Mulholland Drive, my brother and I, my dad would take us over the pass into the valley. And the one day we were coming over the pass and we saw this truck was honking on the side of the freeway coming down. And my dad said, look, look, boys. He said, that truck has lost its brake brakes. It's, it's a runaway truck and there's no runaway lane. And watch what he does. He's going to scrape up against the side of the mountain. He's going to slowly come to a stop. He's going to destroy his truck but he's going to save himself and he's going to save all of us. A lot of traffic on that big freeway. And my brother and I were, we couldn't believe it. And then all of a sudden, yes, it scraped up against, it came to a stop and we were clapping. And I took one look at the embankment and I knew, no, again, mind over matter. I mean, that's crazy that your mind in a, one second went back to that moment. Just like that, right. That is unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, it, and it saved my life. Uh, I, I saw the embankment. I didn't know, but the um, the vertical embankment on the on the on the uh, river right descending um, was not was not the root system of the fir- of one tree, but two massive trees that were blocking up the whole works. And and the the current was rip roaring through their branches. And uh, I came back with the fireman who helped me um, that day. I came back uh, the following day to try to get some gear back. And we measured each of the trees were four feet in diameter. There was four feet of water underneath branches that would have definitely uh, snarled me up. But I saw the embankment. I knew I have to, I have to hit it. I have to come scraping in and I have to get out. I'm not going under. 
I don't care what happens. I'm not going under. Uh, uh, we call it a sweeper. That sweeper. And I did. I, I, I came. But the last second, the last possible second, I wasn't exactly straight. And I, I was just at a little bit of an angle. And the front of the canoe rammed the embankment, the vertical embankment, right before the log, the first big log. The canoe came came right out. I'm in the drink. It's a glacial river. I'm in the drink. I see the canoe. I see all my worldly belongings. Everything swoosh in one second disappeared. In the same second, I see my hands grab onto the roots of that embankment, and I'm scraping my way out of that river. And um, it was just, it, 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 it was absolutely incredible. But um, I had to... Uh, just really quickly to continue the story, I, I, I made my way out. And now the secondary killer is hypothermia. I'm shaking like a leaf because of uh, uh, Western Washington and Eastern Washington are two different animals. It was really hot, it was dry, arid, and coming, coming through before that, coming through Eastern Washington. So I had gotten rid of the neoprene wetsuit. I, 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 I cotton kills and I had a t-shirt. I had Levi's. I, I had my, my, my life vest, but I came out, I'm shaking, and I didn't have any clothes. I didn't have shoes. I didn't have a wallet. I had nothing. And I, I made my way up to the highway, interstate, and I was too embarrassed to, to wave for the big trucks coming by. So then I remembered the fly fisherman. So I, I, I turned to my right, and there's the off-ramp right there. So I start walking towards the off-ramp. I want to ask the fisherman for help. Can I, can I get dry? Can I get a change of clothes? Can I, can I try to get warm? And, um, and then as I'm coming down the off-ramp, this, this Ram Dooley, this big, this big four-wheel drive American pickup truck, sort of on steroids, comes sliding around the turn and barreling up the wrong way onto the freeway. It's coming up. What? It's coming up the, the, the off-ramp. Just randomly right there? Randomly. That's... Yeah. Just, I, I didn't have a phone. I didn't, it was, I didn't have anything. And my electronic bag, everything was gone. And. And I realize he's coming for me. And I wave my arms. He comes sliding to us, getting to us to a halt. He throws open the passenger uh, door and he says, get in. The heater's on. Oh, my God. Yeah. So this guy, this guy uh, from Montana, <laughs> this guy, um, he, had, he had been on the freeway talking to his wife on the phone. And he's looking. He's looking at the river underneath and he sees a, a canoe with no canoeist trucking down the river and he sees this gear. And now this guy is thinking in milliseconds and this guy, his, he's determined, just as determined as I was to survive, this guy is determined to find the canoeist and to save the canoeist. And uh, anyway, th th that's Montana. Th th they let you do crazy things, but then the moment you need help, these people... They're the first ones to, to roll up their and sleeves. And that's just and help one <laughs> near-death experience, right? <laughs> right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I was behind wow. schedule. I, I finally I got through eastern Montana, which is quite a schlep, and then uh, just into uh, North Dakota. And I, I, I initially I thought I'm going to hang up the paddles as not a give up, but as a pause. And then at some point I'm going to come back and continue from there. But then about a week later, a friend talking to a friend on the phone. I forget which one. And the friend says, Neil, you realize you're going to have to start over. 
<laughs> it was just, it was so hard. Everything was so hard to get to, to get I there. And <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, risked my life and almost... the flooding and it was just, it was ridiculously hard. And so, but then I thought to myself, wait a second, the route, the route that I had selected, I had selected, you know, for a year, it took a year to work out the route. The, the whole idea was to crisscross the country and, and to have the chance to be continuous. And then I thought the people that I met, the stories I chronicled, the, the terrain, just the natural beauty, the natural wonder, you know, from Oregon to Washington to Idaho to Montana into North Dakota. I thought, what a pleasure, what a pleasure to try again. And the second time I felt a little bit guilty because it was not record flooding and I, it just it felt way too easy. <laughs> it was still tough. You're coming up these major rivers, but anyway. But I mean, kudos <laughs> to you to not only persevering, but also starting the whole thing again. I mean, you could have easily picked up where you left off and nobody would have batted an eye, I'm sure, except for you. But it's so impressive, man. I want to make sure that we mention, once again, the website. I- I'm going to post, if you don't mind, from your from your website, you have a picture of the route you took in in three acts as you call them. So I'm going to put that up in the show notes so people can see that. But um, over at 22 Rivers, at the number 22rivers.com, they can find all the various links. And then you have the book, of course. Oh, you want to talk about the book or wherever other places that people can find you or whatever you want to share here, really? Okay. Oh, yeah. So there, there's two books. There's um, The first was Down the Mississippi. Uh, and then, um, and then the, the second, the second book, uh, was Homeland. So it's called Homelands, a memoir, which is South Africa, just unraveling from apartheid. Yeah. And, uh, of course you can read more about the journey and yeah. yeah. I mean, well, what's next for you, Neil? I, you know, I'm not exactly sure I've got, I'm looking at Europe as a possibility. I'm looking, um, come on over, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm really I'm, I'm sort of I want to call it 22 nations I'm, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm excited about the, the, the chance to traverse uh, to make my way through Europe is a possibility I'm looking mm-hmm. at Australia the, the, the um, more canoeing uh, more canoeing uh, out yeah. there um, possibility Southeast Asia I, I'm not exactly sure what's next but there's there's some possibilities on the horizon wow is there something you wish others knew about you I think it's important to um we, we talked about this a little bit uh, uh, um, through the course of the interview, but I think I think it's important to find um, what makes you happy and what makes you tick. And I think there's something there's something powerful to understand um, th- that I've come to a realization every time I do I, I go on these travels and I I put myself out there with with, with adventure, a sort of full tilt adventure, if you will. Um, the idea that that uh, we are able in our lifetimes, we're able to attach ourselves to incredible places. You can spin the globe, you can put your best foot forward. And um, the, the, the whole concept of travel, the, the whole concept of calling ourselves travelers, of, of the, dr- the dream, the, the dream of it, and then making that dream a reality, I think, I think all of us, all of us can do it. And it's something, it's something that, that when we do, at least for me, I find happiness. I find I, 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 you, you have with the whole world that people along the way are going to tell you you're crazy. You can't do this. You have to sort of have that nine to five job. You have to, 
you have to conform. And I think for, for uh, a lot of people do, a few of us are happy with that. A lot of us aren't. And I think um, there, 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 there's so much, there's so much opportunity, opportunity to learn, to learn from culture, to learn from people, to learn from nature, um, to really learn from the world. And, and um, I don't know, I, I, I like the idea of not knowing what's next. I think, I think when it's all plotted and planned, it, 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 it's, not, it's not as fun, but, but that's, that's in a nutshell who I am. I love it. Uh, it's a great way to end. And when, uh, when you do know what's next, I look forward to hearing about it and staying in touch. And I uh, really appreciate your time today, Neil. Thank you so much. It's a deal. So nice to be here. Thank you, Jason. There you have it. Thanks to Neil for stopping by the show. Hope you enjoyed that. I loved that conversation. I did want to pull out one more clip from that chat, something you heard way back at the top. And as I mentioned at the top, this kind of reminded me of a phrase that I think is good to keep in mind when you're feeling stuck. Here's the clip. If it really was all planned out, if, if, if there was, for example, a trust fund or, or if I had a high, high power job or, or, or whatnot that, that, uh, that, that lent itself to travel, I think a lot of the fun would be taken away. Um, part of the fun is how, how are you going to make it work? There you go. How are you going to make it work? As Neil finished up there, that is a question he has had to ask himself and figure out. And that's a big theme throughout a lot of these podcasts. People have a travel goal or life goal. Usually those two commingle, at least on this show. And then they have to figure out how to make it work. And time and again, I've seen people make it work. I've heard stories from people that have figured out a way to make it work. And this reminded me of a phrase that you've heard quite often, that there's never a perfect time. And that's true. I know these cliche phrases sometimes, it's like, well, there's never a perfect time. You got to go for it. It's, it sounds like a platitude, but when you really take it to heart and you think about, well, that, that hasn't been more clear than in recent times. You know, a lot of people that I've interacted with here in this listening community, even and beyond, they had this perfect plan of travel. And then, as you know, in recent years, that seemingly perfect plan on paper fell apart because of what happened in the world. Nobody could travel. Travel shut down. And that's a great example of how these perfect plans, even if you think they're perfect, might end up falling apart anyway. So you can make it work, whatever it is. Be confident. Wherever you go next in travel, in business, in your career, in life, you have what it takes to make it work. And I am saying this because I'm pumping myself up too right now. Because I, like you, I have doubts and things I'm working on right now. And so this is a great reminder to remember, we're resourceful individuals, we can make it work. And I will close this out with a quote from Wayne Dyer. I love uh, Wayne Dyer. He wrote one of my favorite books, The Power of Intention. I'm not sure if this quote is from there, but here's the quote. If you believe it will work out, you'll see opportunities. If you believe it won't, you will see obstacles. Thanks for listening. We're going to continue Wild Ways to Travel Week with one more episode coming your way. So follow and subscribe to the podcast, which is, of course, free in your app, wherever you're listening. And stay tuned. Look forward to seeing you next time. Peace and love to you and yours. Have a great rest of your day. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality. 